Hey, welcome back. I'm your host, Little Dave, and welcome to another episode of Excellent Reception, the podcast where we talk about timeless music and tell the stories behind the songs to help you better understand why they are so amazing. Before we get started, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are available. Please take the time to leave a review. These help to push up our rankings in the podcast charts so more people can discover excellent reception. Also, check out our website, www.excellentreception.com, for more information about the artist and the songs we have featured on the podcast. On today's episode, we're going to explore a few rhythm and blues classics that combine the sound of groovebox drum machines with bare bones melodies and multi-track recording to produce one of the more niche sounds of 70s soul music. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the music of Sly and the Family Stone, Little Sister, Timmy Thomas, Shuggy Otis, Little Beaver, and George McRae. Excellent reception. Huge changes in technology have always had an effect on the way music sounds. Those who have the ability to work with the latest tools can use them to develop styles and techniques which go on to completely reshape the sound of popular music for future generations. In the early 70s, there was a wave of low-fidelity soul music which was birthed out of cheaper access to multi-track recording tools, electronic drum machines, and smaller keyboards. A lot of this technology was targeted at people who play music as a hobby, but much of it would help to increase the productivity of professional musicians. One of the signature instruments of this time was the groove box, a small portable drum machine that has a few pre-programmed rhythms built in. This device was created with the intention of being used as a more advanced metronome for musicians to play along with while practicing. They eventually found a place in the recording studio with songwriters who wanted to write and record music without having to bring in a session drummer. In this case, the drummer would lay down their part after the rest of the song was ready to go. People began to notice that there was a special chemistry occurring between man and machine which led them to experimenting with making these drum machines part of their final composition. There were a few different versions of these groove boxes. Some were standalone, while others were embedded into instruments. Easily, one of the most recognizable groove boxes in 70s music was the Maestro Rhythm King MRK2. The rhythms it produced were much more mechanical than a human drummer. Yet, the individual percussion sounds all have an organic feel. While drum machines that appeared years later, such as the Roland TR-808, sounded completely synthetic, the Rhythm King had a very natural texture to it, reminiscent of wood instruments like the clave and woodblock. Unfortunately, you couldn't program your own rhythms into it. Instead, you had to use one of 18 preset patterns, 
which included things like bossa nova, cha-cha, swing, slow rock, and go-go rhythms. The only way to get more unique and interesting rhythms out of it would be to toggle between the different patterns by quickly hitting the switches on and off. Excellent reception. Some of the most well-known uses of the maestro rhythm king came from funk pioneer Sly Stone, who referred to this machine as the funk box. Sly could be credited with helping to kick off a wave of lo-fi soul music in the 70s. And more importantly, giving drum machines one of their most high-profile introductions into the world of pop music. As the story goes, Sly resorted to using the Rhythm King after having a major fallout with his drummer, Greg Errico, while working on Sly and the Family Stone's fifth album, There's a Riot Going On. This album was recorded while there was a lot of tension in the band, largely due to Sly Stone's drug use. A significant portion of the project was developed alone by Sly at his recording studio, The Plant, as well as in his home studio in Bel Air. He would record the layers of each song to tape in a series of overdubs. Once he felt the song was ready, he would add in other musicians and vocalists. The dark and often muddy sound of the recording was due to the constant erasing and re-recording of the music to tape. The maestro rhythm king can be heard all over the album. In order to get a much more natural feeling performance out of the machine, Sly would overdub each individual drum sound, piece by piece, which contributed to a densely packed mix and the loose swing of the rhythm. There's a Riot Going On helped to open the possibilities of what was acceptable on a pop record and gave artists the pass to explore beyond the standard ways of doing things. After this album, there was an undercurrent of minimalistic soul music releases that took to heart the lessons taught by Sly Stone. Let's take a minute to listen to one of the hit songs from There's a Riot Going On called Family Affair, which is the fourth and final number one hit song from Sly and the Family Stone. This track really accentuates the artificial textures of the drum sound more than many of the other songs on the album. Everything is a bit unpolished on this recording, especially the vocals, which were said to have been recorded into the studio talkback microphone. So here's Sly and the Family Stone with Family Affair. They just love to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. Mom loves the both of them. You see, it's in the blood. Both kids are good to mom. Blood's thicker than the mud. It's a family affair. It's a family affair. It's a 
After the success of Sly and the Family Stone's Stand album, and a few years before they began recording There's a Riot going on, Sly was able to negotiate a deal with Atlantic Records to start his own label, Stone Flower Records. This would be an opportunity to develop and groom new acts that were offshoots of the Family Stone. Much like how Prince did with groups like Vanity Six and The Time, these new acts were really mouthpieces for Sly Stone's own creative ideas. He would write the lyrics, produce the music, and play all the instruments on the recordings. The label was short-lived and only released four singles by three artists. An R&B singer named Joe Hicks, a group called Six, and a trio of singers called Little Sister. The group Little Sister actually featured Sly Stone's real-life little sister, Veda, as well as vocalist Mary McCleary and Elva Moulton. They were an extremely talented all-female vocal harmony group who also worked as background singers for Sly and the Family Stone. Before that, the trio was part of a gospel group called the Heavenly Tones while they were still in high school. As the Heavenly Tones, they were mentored by gospel legends such as James Cleveland, Shirley Caesar, and Albertina Walker. James Cleveland would produce their earlier album, I Love the Lord. Little Sister would kick off Stoneflower's debut with two well-received singles in 1970. First was the extremely funky You're the One, Part 1 and 2. That was followed up by a single that included the songs Somebody's Watching You and Stenga. Somebody's Watching You was something truly special. First, it was a cover version of a song from Sly and the Family Stone's Stand album. Second, it was the first time on record where Sly used the maestro rhythm king instead of a live drummer. This song would set the stage for what Sly Stone had in store for us on There's a Riot going on. It made history as being the first American pop song to use a drum machine on a recording. Let's take a moment to listen to Somebody's Watching You by Little Sister.
This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. Child prodigy and multi-instrumentalist Shuggy Otis had accomplished more before the age of 21 than most people do in a lifetime. His mastery of the guitar won him the respect of some of the biggest names in music. It was said that he turned down offers to play with bands with big names like the Rolling Stones, Bowie, and Stevie Wonder. At one point, he was even considered to be the heir to Jimi Hendrix's throne. Shuggy Otis first picked up a guitar at the age of two. By the time he was 11, he could be found in nightclubs wearing dark glasses and a fake mustache to disguise himself while he played in his father's band. His father was the massively influential band leader and rhythm and blues pioneer, Johnny Otis. While in his teens, Shuggy would go on to be a player on a variety of obscure albums. He was featured on Cold Shot by his father's band, The Johnny Otis Show. He recorded an entire album for Al Cooper's Cooper Session series. And he even appeared under a fake name on a rare X-rated album as a member of the group Snatch and the Poontangs. Later, he ended up playing on albums by Frank Zappa, Etta James, Bobby Blue Bland, and more. Shuggy would sign with Epic Records and release three albums between 1970 and 1974. The first album, Here Comes Shuggy Otis, was more of a guitar rock and blues project with his father working in the background to create the arrangements. On the follow-up, Freedom Flight, Shuggy began to take control of the songwriting and his music grew more adventurous. This album features one of Shuggy's most famous creations, the psychedelic love song, Strawberry Letter 23. Guitarist George Johnson of the group The Brothers Johnson loved the song so much that he got Quincy Jones to help them make a cover version of it for their 1977 album, Right On Time. The Brothers Johnson's version of Strawberry Letter 23 would end up being a smash hit. By the time Shuggy started recording his third album, Inspiration Information, he was approaching adulthood and wanted to have complete control of his musical expression. On this album, he went all in, writing all the songs, mixing them, and playing all the instruments himself, with the exception of strings, flutes, and horns. He heavily incorporated the Rhythm King drum machine, which he first used on Strawberry Letter 23. Each track was composed using the percolating beat of the drum machine as a skeleton and layering on melodic elements around it. Inspiration information turned out to be a masterpiece of an album. Unfortunately, it may have been too far ahead of its time. It wouldn't be until decades later when David Byrne's label Luakabop Records would pluck the album out of obscurity in 2001 and re-release it for a new generation of music lovers. Inspiration Information is now considered to be one of the greatest albums of all time. Let's listen to one of my favorite songs from Inspiration Information. It's called Out of My Head.
Sometimes an artist records a song that says something so profound and important that nothing else they create can compare. These rare songs have a way of capturing the zeitgeist of the time period they were written in. Inspiration struck singer-songwriter Timmy Thomas to create his magnum opus after seeing a news report that talked about the 35,000 Viet Cong and the 15,000 Americans that died in a single day of fighting during the Vietnam War. He sat down at that moment and wrote, Why Can't We Live Together? An endearing call for peace that asked why the human race can't come together and settle our differences. Part of the song laments on the ongoing war and other sections comment on the civil rights movement. Before writing the song, Timmy Thomas had been struggling to survive as a musician for over a decade. He worked as a sideman and a session musician in Memphis, Tennessee, before moving to Miami, Florida. He also worked as a lounge singer and released a few singles in the late 60s. At one point, Thomas even set in on performances with Cannonball Adderley and Donald Byrd. Of all the skill sets he developed over the years, it was Thomas's ability to perform as a one-man band that creates all the magic in Why Can't We Live Together. His singing and instrumentation all work in perfect harmony to express the conviction he has towards the subject matter. The song has a deeply personal level of emotion that would be impossible for a group of musicians to capture as a team. He recorded the entire session himself, without doing any overdubs. Everything is performed in just one take. The song itself is minimal. You mainly just hear the pulsating swells of an electric organ, Timmy Thomas's heartfelt vocals, and a groove box drum machine set on a samba pattern. Many people assume that the drum machine was the maestro rhythm king, but it was confirmed that he was actually using the percussion preset on a drum machine that was built into his Lowry organ. It's hard to hear it, but Thomas was also playing the bass line with his foot and a guitar with his left hand, which was something he was known for doing in his live performances. The entire composition sounds huge, even though the session was recorded to tape in mono. 
At one point, his record label considered re-recording the song with a full band, but later they agreed it was perfect as it was. Why Can't We Live Together would go on to be an anthem for peace around the world. Timmy Thomas's message of hope would send him to all 50 states and to 35 different countries. Why Can't We Live Together would even become the theme song for Nelson Mandela's presidential election campaign in South Africa, a place where the song was banned in the 1970s during the height of apartheid. Throughout the years, Why Can't We Live Together would make a huge impact on the music world. It would be covered by artists like Santana, Steve Winwood, and Sade. MC Hammer even reworked the song into an inspirational track for his Too Legit to Quit album. Recently, Why Can't We Live Together had a huge revival after rapper Drake sampled it for his song Hotline Bling, which gave Timmy Thomas his second major hit song. All right, let's listen to it now. Here is Timmy Thomas's Why Can't We Live Together. This is the Excellent Reception Podcast.
out like a sore thumb. Yeah, somebody will find it. Somebody Miami must have been a heck of a place in the 1970s, especially for soul music. There was a handful of great recording studios, distribution companies, and record labels providing an outlet for some amazingly talented singers and musicians. When we think of great soul music record labels, we usually think of Motown from Detroit or Stax out of Memphis, but Miami had its own million-selling soul music enterprise. An elusive figure named Henry Stone ran the legendary TK Records, which was the home to multiple sub-labels like Glades, Cat, Alston, and Sunshine Sound. TK Records produced a long list of hit records for soul artists like Gwen McRae, Timmy Thomas, and Clarence Reed, as well as disco acts like KC and the Sunshine Band. Just like how Motown Records had the Funk Brothers, TK Records had their own house band made up of top-notch session musicians. One of these musicians was guitarist Willie Hale, who is best known by his nickname, Little Beaver a name he earned because of the buck teeth he had as a child. Hale was a masterful guitar man whose iconic licks made classic songs like Gwen McRae's Clean Up Woman memorable. Little Beaver signed with Cat Records, a division of TK Records, to put out a solo project. The overall feel of this album is centered around the themes presented in the title track, which is called Party Down. The writing process for the song Party Down started while he was lounging at a friend's house listening to records and some chord changes on one song caught his attention. Little Beaver was struck by the beauty of the chord progression and he felt like it could be something great if he reworked it and added some lyrics. He also found inspiration from a guitar rhythm he heard in a commercial for a Caribbean vacation. Hearing Marvin Gaye's What's Going On inspired him to add percussion elements to give it more of a Latin feel. Instead of getting a Congo player, he used a drum machine to create the vibe of a live drummer playing along. I'm not sure if Little Beaver was using an actual Maestro Rhythm King groove box, or if maybe he was using the same drum machine that was built into Timmy Thomas's organ. Please note that Timmy happened to do some of the keyboard work on the Party Down album. When it came to lyrics, Little Beaver just talked about how his life was at the time. In those days, his routine consisted of relaxing out in the Miami sunshine, getting high, hanging out with beautiful women, playing music, and enjoying the nightlife. The entire project reflects this laid-back yet celebratory attitude. Even though it's consistent from a stylistic standpoint, the whole Party Down album is full of interesting concepts and notable highlights that kept people checking back to it for more. Let's listen to Little Beaver's classic song, Party Down. Excellent reception. Yeah. 
This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. Some real magic must have been happening down in Miami during the recording sessions at the TK Records studio. They just had a way of striking gold when they least expected it. Almost by accident, they found themselves helping to set the stage for the oncoming disco era when they created the song Rock Your Baby by George McRae. It was disco music that would go on to give TK Records a huge second act, which ended up being some of their most successful years. Rock Your Baby started out as a demo idea written by a young record clerk and part-time warehouse employee at TK Records by the name of Henry Wayne Casey. Casey, along with studio engineer Richard Finch, had been working on demos for a side project that combined Casey's singing and songwriting with music from studio musicians at TK and players from the Miami Junkanoo Band. The work they were doing would end up being the debut project from Casey and the Sunshine Band. Timmy Thomas's Lowry organ was still in the recording studio after recording the Why Can't We Live Together album, and it seemed to just have a way of turning up on quite a few great records. Richard Finch started fooling around with the drum machine on the organ and set it on a sped-up samba-style beat. With This Is The Backbone, he and Casey began crafting the melody to the song that would become Rock Your Baby. Everyone at TK loved the song, but they didn't feel like it was a good fit for Casey and the Sunshine Band. It needed someone whose voices could hit higher notes. They reached out to singer Gwen McRae, who you may know for classic songs like 90% of Me and later on hits like Funky Sensation. They figured her wide vocal range could give the song the boost it needed, but Gwen ended up running late to the session. Good thing that among the group of people waiting for her to arrive was her husband, George McRae. George was also a singer, but he had put his career on the back burner to support his wife by working on her music and acting as her manager. Instead of waiting around, Casey and Finch decided to try having George record the song. His soft, sweet falsetto was perfect for the track. Later on, Gwen McRae would make up for missing the session by recording an answer record called Rocking Chair with George on backing vocals. Rock Your Baby was created with the goal of being a hit and breaking through to a new market. They saw that nightclubs in Miami were starting to have DJs play music. And with the drinking age recently being lowered to 18, venues wanted to have a new sound to attract this audience. Casey and Finch constructed the song to work perfectly on the dance floor. It had a fast tempo and a steady, easy-to-move-to drum beat with an open hi-hat. They combined that with rhythm guitar and a funky bass line. While it didn't quite have that large, in-your-face production quality of the songs that would come after it, this was one of the earliest incarnations of what we now know as disco music. Rock Your Baby would go on to sell over 10 million copies. It also played a huge role in inspiring Swedish pop group ABBA to make their hit Dancing Queen. So here it is, George McRae with Rock Your Baby. Rock your, rock your baby. 
This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. Well, thank you once again for tuning in to Excellent Reception. If you love what we're doing here, please spread the word to other music lovers you know. Make sure you check us out at excellentreception.com. And if you haven't done it yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you can be the first to hear new episodes. Also, you can listen to my broadcast radio show, Eavesdrop Radio, in Philadelphia every Friday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on WKDU 91.7 FM. We're streaming live at WKDU.org. So until next time, this is your host, Little Dave, signing off for Excellent Reception, where we're always coming in loud and clear with the sounds you need to hear. Excellent Reception.